and welcome to Autodidacts Anonymous. My name's Matt, and I'm an autodidact. And I am Hado, and I too am an autodidact. Well done, Hado. You got it right. <laughs> um, so today we're moving into the third part of Harari's book, Sapiens, and the part, or the section, is called The Unification of Humankind. Yes, and this is a shortish chapter, but it's absolutely the stuff I love because this is big picture. Yeah. None of this this view from you know view from the sky and the bird's eye view stuff. We're talking big, big picture. Yeah, here. yeah. Um, so this particular chapter is called the Arrow of History, and it's basically investigating is history moving in a certain direction. Yes. And don't give it away, Hutto. We'll, will we'll get to it. I have a feeling we will give it away before we get to the grand reveal, but uh, <laughs> let's see how we go. So, to be, uh, basically what we've already covered is that after the agricultural revolution, humans developed an elaborate network of artificial instincts allowing society to get more complex and humans to cooperate together in larger groups. This network of artificial instincts is called culture. Mm. Um, it used to be thought that cultures left to their own devices were static mm. and never changed. And that was certainly the, the prevailing wisdom in the first half of the 20th century. Yeah. Um, only a force from outside of a culture could change it. And this, this also is, uh, there's a lot of wisdom in this chapter. I mean, I, part of why I love Havari's writing is it's filled with wisdom. Mm. Um, but, you know, this, this is one of the pearls he drops in is, just how often the views which were taught as established fact, orthodoxy, uh, when I was a child, mm. have been proven to be wrong. Were you a child in the first half of the 20th century? I, uh, no, only in the second <laughs> half. Didn't quite get to the first half. <laughs> um, so today, most scholars think differently. Uh, they think the opposite is true. Uh, norms, beliefs, and values are in constant flux within societies, even mm. if they're unaffected from the outside. Um, cultures change themselves. Yes. Uh, this often happens due to environmental changes. Yes. Or it can happen with contact with other cultures. Yes. Um, so it's surprising how much a little bit of contact with an outside culture can change your your culture. Yes. Um and it's a major worry if you're trying to run North Korea. Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> um, but they also transition due to their own internal, internal dynamics. Um, every man-made order is packed with internal contradictions. Mm. And these tensions are constantly being reconciled, which fuels change. Yes. So, for example, the medieval nobility believed in both Christianity... And chivalry. Yes. So on a Sunday morning, they'd go to church and, and hear all about how they had to be humble and how they had to offer the other cheek if someone sucked them in one cheek and yep. you know look after the, the, the poor in society and so forth. And then in the afternoon, they'd go to a banquet and talk about honour and courage and, and then they'd plan their next, 
their next war. Absolutely, you know, Lancelot and Guinevere, and he, he puts in this lovely, this lovely passage, it is better to die, declared the barons, than to live with shame. <laughs> if someone questions your honour, only blood can wipe out the insult. Yes. And what is better in life than to see your enemies flee before you and their pretty daughters tremble at your feet? That's supposed to be from um, Chinggis Khan, that quote. <laughs> it was also in the first movie that Arnold Schwarzenegger was in. Uh, ooh, it was oh, the, um, the first Conan one. the Barbarian. Yeah, Conan the Barbarian <laughs> says it. <laughs> that's right. And, and everyone was like, wow, that's a pretty brutal <laughs> quote. Turns out it's a real quote from real history. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but, you know, what greater contrast can you have than Christian humility, suffering and death on the cross? Yes. So these are contradictory mm. um, cultures. And the contradiction was never fully resolved. No. Um, one attempt to figure it out produced the crusade, Crusades. So now you could demonstrate your military prowess and your religious devotion yep. by going to the Near East and killing people. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and showing, what a good Christian. And showing them that you are better because you are Christian. <laughs> and, and I suppose an extreme example of, of this, this um, uh, what's the word, tension between um, Christianity and chivalry were the fact that um, chivalrous bands of religious orders were created, such as the yep. Knights Templar and the Knights Hospitallers. Yep who were monks, essentially, yes, uh, but also knights at the same time. Yep. Um, uh, yeah. And, and yes, and it goes on, as I'm sure you're about to say, that it, it fills your art, it fills your history, it fills your legends, King Arthur, Holy Grail. That's exactly right. Yeah. So um, knights are good Christians, and good Christians make the best knights. Absolutely. That's just the, this is the compromise ethos that you, you produce from it. And, of course, it, it influences the whole ethics. Um, so much of law was based on Christian law and theology in the you know, countries like England, certainly. Yeah. Um, so, tension everywhere. Mm. So, it also manifested in the modern political order. So, ever since the French Revolution... We've been striving for equality, liberty, equality, fraternity. Yep. But we've also been striving for political freedom. Freedom. Yes, freedom. Now, equality and freedom are contradictory, Hado. Oh, yes. That's because in order to have equality, you've got to take away from the haves and give to the have-nots. Absolutely. But then that is not free. Indeed not. So, since 1789, the French Revolution... We've been attempting to reconcile this contradiction. And you could use the example of Democrats versus Republicans in the US. You can. Um, we've never resolved this. Um, such contradictions are an inseparable part of every human culture. Now, Harari argues that this is a good thing. Uh, he does. I mean, uh, the comment here he also included was Charles Dickens, you know, who very much about the liberalism, liberal regimes of 19th century Europe and individual freedom, but you end up with people in poor, poor houses and stuff like that mm. as the counterside of exactly that kind. Yeah, yeah. So according to Harari, this tension is essentially the driving force behind progress. So it results in creativity, clearer thinking, you know, as we argue about how things should be yes. and so forth, and it drives us forward. 
Yes. Um, so part of what we're saying here is there is no such thing as justice. There is only a dynamic, which is very similar to economics, mm. where you know, it, if you've got a completely stable economy, it basically means it's dead. Yeah. Economics is always about a striving diversity. Mm. Um, it's, it, I guess it's about the tension between different parties wanting, you know, wanting different things. It, it is. And I, I also keep seeing people saying, you know, when can we achieve economic stability and equal distribution and all this sort of thing? But it's like walking. Walking is about constantly toppling over. Mm. Um, you can stand still and go nowhere, yeah. but if you want to actually go anywhere and progress, you need to keep falling over. Yeah. So it then follows that any human being, including you and I, uh, living in any culture, must by definition hold contradictory beliefs and incompatible values. Yes. This um, is called cognitive dissonance. Uh, well, cognitive dissonance applies to a lot of things, but this is one application of it. Yeah. So often we consider this to be a failure when in fact it is a vital asset. Yes. Uh, without it, it's probably impossible to establish and maintain human culture. Yes. Um, and this, this is the beauty of the wisdom that comes out of this book. You know, it, it applies across so many things. It's not just culture. It's not just economics. It's not just justice system. It's not just politics. It's pretty much across the mm. whole spectrum. When I think of tension or great attention, I usually think of artists. Yes. You know, the, the miserable people tended to make the best poets. Yes. And, uh, you know, I don't know, I don't know how happy Picasso was, but he certainly was very creative and there was a lot coming through in his work. Yes, and it's also part of what they say, you know, once you reach a point where most of the people in an empire become comfortable and decadent, your empire is basically dying at that point. Yeah, the Mongols are a good, good example of that, actually, because they lived a tough life and they were tough people. Yeah. Uh, living out on the steppes, and uh, they were very good fighters, and they used those skills to essentially take over Asia and yeah. you know parts of Eastern Europe, biggest land-based empire in history. Yes, and within about three generations, they yeah. couldn't hold it together because they were too used to wealth and privilege. They'd been assimilated into comfortable city cultures, and yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah, um, and. It, it's one of the things, you know, you can go to things like Brave New World and What is a Utopia. A whole bunch of comfortable people with no envy, no goals, nothing to strive for. I'm not sure that this is a, an ultimate achievement. Yeah. Or... yeah, yeah. I like the idea of being happy, but I don't think it's the meaning of life. No, and one, one of the things I look for when I'm reading a book, um, if I can't relate to the character striving... I find it difficult to relate yeah, to them. Imagine reading a book about a guy that just sort of gets everything he wants and has yeah. no challenges. That's right. And so, you know, some of the future science fiction stuff of some guy who's thoroughly bored and comfortable living in a, a utopia, I've switched off already. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Um, so cultures are in constant flux. Um, now, the, quest, the big question of the day, Hado, is, is it random how cultures change? Do they just move in all sorts of different directions? Or... Do we have a consistent pattern in terms of how they move? In other words, does history have a direction? Yes, and this is a big picture question. And do you want to, do you know what the answer is? I have read the book. <laughs> <laughs> the answer is yes. Okay, history does have a direction. History is moving relentlessly towards unity. Yeah. 
This is not immediately obvious from no. the ground eye ground eye view no. because there are many many setbacks. Yes. Um, but if you use the satellite view, yeah, and this and look at it over a big big uh, slice of time and over a big geographic area, then it's pretty much um, it it's it's inexorably striving towards unity yeah. of humankind. And, and this, Harari says, you know, to see the arrow of history, we have to get above the bird's eye view. Yeah. Many people think that a bird's eye view gives you the big picture. Yeah. And this is a beautiful example of what I'm about. Yeah. The bird's eye view is not big picture to no. so many people. They really think it is. I yeah. see so many people arguing about American politics as if America's the whole world. Yes. Um, big picture is big and you go up to the satellites. To it is. It. And, it, and it's... You need to view uh, reality from all the different views, in a sense, if you want to understand it. So the bird's eye view is still important, yes, but it's it's not as macro. Not you know, it hides things that the satellite view will reveal, correct, and, and vice versa. And the same thing, what you're saying about looking at things from many angles is right. You know, you will never reach the truth just through physics or just through yeah. philosophy or anything else. Yeah, yeah. So some examples of setbacks that we that we find in society, even though it's inexorably leading towards um, the unification of humankind, are the crumbling of the Mongol Empire. So yes. people living in the Mongol Empire at the time was crumbling, probably weren't thinking, "Oh wow, you know, humanity is becoming more unified." No, no. But it has. Yes. <laughs> um, I think another good example is the section in Christianity. So no, no sooner had Christianity become the dominant religion in Europe. Yes, and the state empire of Rome and all yeah, that sort of thing. That it started basically falling apart yes. into, into you know into different sects. So originally you had your Arians and your Monophysists yeah. and all this sort of stuff, and then uh, later on you sort of had a, a split between the the Western Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox. Uh, now, now it must be remembered that it began that way too. Well, at the time Constantine was trying to introduce it as the state. Religion for Rome. It had already split it broke yes. up. Yes, part of his problem was saying, well, can we all agree on what you guys believe? Yes, you know, and I different. suppose they couldn't, really. Well, this is why they came up with the Nicene Creed. Yeah. And they kept debating, trying to put other stuff in it, and eventually Constantine said, look, forget it, you guys, you can't all agree on this anyway. What we've got here is sufficient, yeah. and it's what we go yeah. with. And um, not everyone could believe that, so they broke away. That too. Um, then later on, you had your um, your split between your Orthodox and your Catholics, and then no longer had the Catholics sort of sorted out Western and Central Europe. Then the, the Protestant Reformation took and, place, and it all went downhill from there. Yeah, and how many different branches of Christianity do we have today? We are talking thousands of different. But by the same token, we still have what? Well, how many how many Christians are in the world? That's right. Still you know, that's so on, on that level, it's still unifying. Still numerically the largest religion at over two billion. Yep. So, the number of human worlds that coexist on Earth has decreased markedly in yep. the last few thousand years, okay? So, in 10,000 BC, we had many thousands of separate worlds, okay? By 2000 BC, we had hundreds. Yeah. Um, by 1450 AD... 90% of humans lived in a single mega world, uh, Afro-Eurasia. Yeah. Cultures were significantly connected culturally 
economically and politically. Yes. And by 1750 AD, we were essentially all living in one world. Yes, it's certainly in those terms. Yes. Culturally, politically, economically. Yeah. So we're not arguing that there weren't different cultures around the place, but they were all interconnected. Yes. The last autonomous human world was Tasmania, which I didn't know. And that was settled by Britons in 1803. And that had been completely separate from the rest of the world for thousands of years, 10,000 years actually, since Tasmania was separated from the mainland of Australia. And that was the last autonomous human world. Now, I was thinking about that. I was thinking, oh, what about these these tribes in the Amazon that get discovered and so forth? Yes. But there's no question they've been affected by the reduction of the Amazon. Even though even though they have their own culture, they've had to live differently. Uh, you know, even though they were separate, they have had to live differently because of the one world culture that, that sort of surrounded them. Well, they do now. I'm not sure if they did. I mean, then... When that, well, well, they did. When that tribe wandered out... Um, the in 2000 and something, that used to chase monkeys and all the rest of it. Yeah. I don't think they'd experienced any, hmm, less monkeys around today. So you don't think they'd noticed their environment change? I think they did not know at all. Okay. Well, I'd be surprised about that. But at the same time, we're talking about a very small group of people Mm. hidden away. And maybe we will discover another tribe somewhere that's been untouched, living below the surface of Antarctica or something. There is, is in fact, one tribe living on a little island um, that we do not touch because they've shown they don't want to be touched. Yeah, but they haven't been completely unaffected, have they? No, well... When they've come, in, they've come into contact. With they've, they've killed a couple of missionaries who yeah. were nuts enough yeah. to go there, and of course... That, and that's what we're talking and about. And we're watching them through satellites and everything else. Yes, yeah. So we've been touched by them, if nothing else. We have, but it's not really clear that politically, politically, economically, or religiously, we have impacted them. All right, so... <laughs> yeah, but so we're, that... we're talking the minute exceptions, yeah. but... Absolutely prove the rule. So today, almost all humans share the same geopolitical system, and that geopolitical system is nation-states. Yes. So even these people you're talking about, they're living in nation-states. Well, they don't know it. No, they don't know it. (laughs) They don't know it, that's true. Um, The same economic system, which is capitalist market forces, and the same legal system, which is human rights and international law. Yes. And the same scientific system. So physicists in every country agree on the structure of atoms. Yes. And medical professionals agree on the treatment of tuberculosis. Yes. And uh, COVID-19. Yeah. Well, we haven't really got a treatment for that yet. <laughs> well, but we're not seeing physicists argue, uh, health professionals arguing that, uh, you know, it's not a virus and it doesn't need to be We just wave this charm over it or something. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um so the, the single culture, we're not arguing the single culture is, is homogeneous. No. Um, but they're all closely connected. Yes. And they influence one another in many ways. Shared values and agreement on the basics. Yes. So, so for example, when Iran and the US argue, as they tend to do, they're using the same language. Yes. So they're talking in the language of nation states, capitalist economies, International law and nuclear physics. Yes. And uh, Harari, you know, you can't argue with it. Once again, Harari has completely made his case. That must be disappointing for you not being able oh, to argue with it. Oh, I think So there are no authentic, i.e. unaffected, cultures left on Earth. 
I mean, even these Amazon, this Amazon tribe that you talk about, I mean, they're living in the, in the suburbs now. Oh, no, they are now. They, yeah. That's right. So. Yeah. Um, for example, you can basically eat international cuisine all around the world. I've, I've travelled around the world a bit, and I pretty much eat the same yeah. wherever I go, all right, with a bit of a local sort of flavour, but, yes. you know, I'm eating a lot of the same things. So, for example, pasta is not Italian. No. It was brought over from China. The yes. Chinese actually um, invented pasta. Potatoes aren't Irish. That's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> not even Belgium. <laughs> Steaks aren't Argentinian. Yes, no, of course not. No. Um, Native Americans, despite what we grew up with with our um, Cowboys and Indians movies, didn't ride horses no. until the 17th century exactly. when they were introduced and they managed to, to pinch a few, I suppose. Because Homo sapiens had already wiped out all the native horses when they first got to America. Correct. And uh, yes, I have to say, of course, the T is not English, astonishing as that sounds. Yeah, well, exactly, yeah. <laughs> and so... The Sioux and Apache that we see in these cowboy and Indian films, uh, riding around on horses and firing rifles yeah. at the cowboys, yeah. um, they were modern co- modern cultures. Yeah, absolutely. Not authentic, unaffected no, they, ancient cultures. They got the rifles and the horses from the uh, from the invaders. So most of this unity has taken place in the last few centuries with the growth of empires and intensification of trade. Yes. Okay. Um, in the first millennium BC, the idea of a uni- universal order first kind of took root, according to Harari. Okay. Um, previously, humans were used to thinking about the world in terms of us and them. Yes. No other animal thinks of themselves as a member of a global species. So you don't have a, a lion who's uh, the alpha lion in his pride saying, hmm, I want to be king of all the lions in the world. Indeed. That's not what they do. No. Um, no chimpanzee really cares much about the well-being of a chimpanzee that lives a thousand miles away from him. No. Lack of imagination. Yeah. They're Lack focused of... on their immediate group, and that's how we always were. Yes. Um, because our innate, genetically, us and them is right in there genetically. Yeah. But... We're not, you know, global concepts is not part of genes. Yes, correct. So humans are exceptional in this respect. I mean, you and I are sitting here now talking about big picture ideas and, yep. and the, the, the direction of history and so forth. Yep. That's not something we would have been doing 2,000 years ago. No, and you know, I, I continue to say we are an exceptional and special species in so many ways. Well, it's hard to get an argument on that, yep. i say. Um, so when, when Egypt became unified for the first time a few thousand years ago, they still had an us and them mentality. Yep. Um, but the circle was widened. Yes. So the, the barbarians weren't the, weren't the guys that lived down the river. They were the guys that lived on the other side of the desert. That's right. We've got more usses. <laughs> we do. <laughs> um, now, there have been three universal orders that have essentially taken over the world in a sense and that essentially include everyone, okay? Mm -hmm. And the big three, it's the economic order, and that's all about money. Yep. There's the political order, which has been all about empires. Yep. And the religious order, which has been all about saving everybody's soul. 
something like that. <laughs> how we worship, how we appease the gods, and uh, what leading a righteous life is about. So merchants, conquerors, and prophets were the first people to transcend the previous binary, yeah. binary meaning us and them, world order. And the next three chapters of the book are going to look at those three main world orders yeah. in detail. Um, and so this was really an introductory chapter to those three chapters yes. that we're going yes. to talk about in more detail. So we're looking at the people who had to think more big picture in terms of who's us and who's them. Yeah. And when you think about it, like in our, in our, when we're thinking geopolitics today, when we're thinking about the state of the world, we're thinking about those three things. Yes. We're worried about money, we're worried about political power, and we're worried about religion. Yes. Okay, they are the big three drivers big three. of yes. geopolitics. Yes. St still today. Yes. So that's that. That's the chapter, Hutto. We've, we, we understand everything now. <laughs> we flew through it. And um, now there's a couple of things we skipped on our, our way through. I, I really took a lot from his statement that... If you want to understand a Muslim, for example, you don't want to know about what's at the centre of his culture, the bit that everything he agrees on. So you can't understand a Muslim by understanding Islam? That's is that... where what he's saying is you need to inquire into the catch-22 of Muslim culture. Those places where the rules are at war and the standards scuffle. So it's just like your, your Christian baron trying to work out whether he's a, a warrior or a... Uh, or a monk. Or a monk, that's right. Um, if you want to understand what's, what's really going on in the Muslim world, you have to understand... And we do tend to underestimate those tensions in others. We do. We tend to sort of treat them as a monolith and saying, this is what they believe and this is who they are, whereas yeah. when it comes to us, we go, oh, we're very complicated complicated creatures and we have all sorts of tension yeah. and different ideas about things. Now, the other thing he didn't mention significantly as being a driver of change in culture is technology. But certainly in the last couple of hundred years, mm. technology has been a huge driver of changes in culture. And in fact, you yeah. can trace that back over several thousand years, changes in technology, particularly in things like... Because technology is not a new thing. I mean, we tend to think of technology as electronics, but yeah. making a tool is, is technology. Yeah, look, the invention it, of writing was a technology. Yeah, as sailing navigate around uh, an ocean, a... Um, navigation and timekeeping so that you can get your language. I wonder whether he sees technology as a result of these changes in culture because he said, he said you're right, he certainly didn't mention it. He didn't mention it here. I think we get to see a little more of it okay. later. And also in his next book, uh, Homo Deus, which is a futurist yeah. sort of look, I mean, that's obviously a lot to do with technology. Yeah. Now, so he covers that in a lot of detail. Obviously. Now, one of the areas where this is becoming very obvious today is the issue of privacy versus um, publicity, the right to know, freedom of information, all this sort of thing. Yeah. And there's a huge battle going on about what are an individual's private rights. Well, I downloaded the um, government tracking app to tell me or tell them if I've been in touch with somebody who has coronavirus. Yes. Um, and you just you chose not to do that, which is a, a reasonable choice because you were concerned about the privacy. Uh, uh, I presume you were no, that about was the privacy. not actually my main issue was technological. Oh, because <laughs> you're having trouble with your phone. Yes. I, oh, okay. Uh, oh, I thought it was for privacy reasons. No, it was conflicting with another app that I ran on there okay. too. So. 
Well, I, I, I decided to choose between the lesser of two evils. I decided to give up some privacy to try and help us with the fight against right. the virus. Because I'm a... Because I'm such a good person, hello. This yeah, is why, well, you know, a much better person than you. Yeah, yeah I'm being dazzled by your halo <laughs> again. <laughs> um, so if you're happy that we've um, finished the chapter... We, we can, because can, we've got uh, some very good questions you lined up, I think. Yes, so uh, I need you to get two out of two today. Uh, I was afraid of that, because you've asked three questions. Oh, have I? <laughs> oh, no. Well, I've got, one, I've got question one, then I've got question 1A and question 1B. Uh, uh, sorry, 2A and 2B. Uh, I'm sweating on this. <laughs> so the first question is, are we all hypocrites? And I'll just, I'll just uh, elaborate a little bit, because I read here that we, um, we basically all share contradictory beliefs and incompatible values. And once again, this is challenging me at my core, Hutto, because... I like to think that I don't do that sort of stuff. Yeah. And Harari's depressing me because he's, make, he's, he's making me realise I'm a far bigger hypocrite than I even thought I was. Right, yes. Um... Although he does say it's a good thing to be like that. So, yeah, I'll, I'll let you answer, but that was why I asked the question. It's almost impossible not to be hypocritical on some point. Um there are so many issues in the world, from privacy to the suffering of chickens to whatever. Yeah. It's, and the world is too big for us to care about everything. You know, Stalin's quote about one death is a tragedy and a million deaths is a statistic, or how do you put it with your paper cuts? A tragedy is when I cut my finger and comedy is when you fall in an open sewer and die. Right, now... You know, the essence of hypocrisy lies in these statements. Yeah. We are not caring equally about everything. I do not care as much about the happiness of chickens. I do care about the suffering of fish that we kill in appalling ways, basically by suffocating them, taking them out of the environment they can breathe. Mm. Um, but if you spend your whole time caring about these things, you can tear yourself to pieces. Now, I'm, I'm struggling these days. I... Uh, I was eating chicken, I think it was the other day, and I was starting to say, passion, heck, you know, those vegans may actually have a point. <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> Unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if you get to the point where you aren't prepared to dig a spade in the ground in case you cut a worm in half, it becomes almost impossible to function. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you've, you've sort of used the same example that I would use. I, I, we've been talking about this in podcasts, but I, I'm, I'm aware that a lot of animals suffer unfairly to fill my belly. Yes. And I'm still, I'm still eating them. Yeah. Right? So, I, you know, that is a huge hypocrisy in me. And uh, I deal with it by forgetting about it. Yes. And that's, I think, what we do to yes. get through. Because in, in, that's just one example of Yes, and you know, we, we talk... I mean, the capitalist system versus Christianity, there's so many Christians out there that are also capitalists. Oh, yes. Pretty hard to reconcile those two um, uh, ideologies, I think. In many ways. I mean, it's about building up personal wealth on earth and what happened to treasures in heaven. So yeah. Then you give a bit to the charities and feel good about it. I think a lot of the reason that Christianity was so popular, took off so quickly in the early days, was because it was, a real, it was a, an ideology for the poor people. And there yes. were a lot more... Poor people around. Absolutely. And Muhammad basically was doing the same thing. He was appearing that there were a lot of women, etc., having problems, and he was coming up with protection for them and ways to negotiate these difficult times. 
And so we, we're making these compromises all the time. Mm. Uh, when someone comes along who's prepared to pursue a path to the death, whether it's Jesus or Gandhi or Nelson Mandela or Martin Luther King or whoever, um, it disturbs us at yeah. a particular level. It disturbs our nice, comfortable, hypocritical zone. Yeah. So your answer to are we all hypocrites is yes. It it's almost impossible not to be hypocritical on some level. And when somebody comes along who genuinely gets close to being totally unhypocritical... I don't know who those people are. I mean, Martin Luther King was famous for um, having extramarital affairs, for example. Well, so Gandhi, that's an example of Gandhi probably comes close. Um, and, you know, they become an embarrassment to everybody else. Yeah. You, know, you need somebody to go out and shoot them. Yeah. So my answer is yes. We're all hypocrites. Yeah, and I think in what we were talking about, uh, racism and stuff like that, from uh, the last chapter, you know, we talked a bit about are we racist in Australia? Yeah, racism is built into human nature, unfortunately. Mm, okay. So my next question is, are humans heading inexorably towards unity? And if so, is, is it a good thing? Right. We are heading inexorably towards unity. I'm a big picture guy and I'm very aware of the, the fact that we are inevitably headed towards globalisation, full globalisation, including speaking the same language and uh, um, very much sorting out similar cultures in terms of things like cuisine, dress sense, stuff like this. Um, now... And so when, when I see people, you know, strong nationalists arguing for nationalism and all the rest of it, who are then saying, you know, hooray for Brexit and, you know, let Catalonia you know, go its own way and all yeah. that sort of thing, um, it actually saddens me. Um, these are obstacles to progress. However, it certainly ain't going to be easy. I mean, I've seen the Soviet Union fall apart in my time. I've been part of seeing the British Empire fall apart um, and I think we may be seeing the end of the United States the beginning of the end I mean yeah. I think it's got a long way to run but oh, it has. Uh, what's happened is the fissures in their society are really coming to the surface it's becoming very clear that the United States are anything but united mm. yes and according to Harari um well, that, that's a, that's a, I mean, obviously fissures and breaks are going to be inevitable, but, I mean, are we going to end up with a world, one world government at some point, you know, if we're talking about the inevitability of the yes. education of humankind? I mean, given that um, a lot of our problems, such as climate change, are global in nature, yes, um, it certainly has its advantages. But we're also a long way away from getting there. I mean, it's almost impossible. I mean, for... To pass a referendum, to, to make a change like that in Australia, for example, you've got to pass a referendum and the people have to vote on it. And the people don't tend to vote for radical change. There are three ways that you get to something like that. You can do it by evolution, which does indeed, as you say, require doing things like running votes past people. Or you can do it by revolution. Yeah. Or you do it by war. Yeah. And historically... War has tended to be a big favourite. Revolutions played big parts. 
Yeah. And, uh, yeah, there's been evolution towards these things, as we'll see when we look at money and the ascent of money and all that good stuff. Yeah. So do you see this inevitable unity as a good thing? Oh, we haven't, haven't mentioned that question. Totally separate question. Oh, well, I, I, that was my 2 oh, Right, yes, quite. Now, look, I see it as being an inevitable thing and the benefits which are pushing us towards it, such as the ability to, you know, deal with ecology, climate change, reach for the stars, and deal with organised crime, which has benefited enormously from the changes which have been made towards globalisation, and the fact that all the police forces continue to be very regional. Mm. Um, but whether or not it's a good thing, there is a reason that empires have tended to come and go, which is the picture you get from the bird's eye view, and that is that this increasing monoblock is, has a lot of downsides. I mean, there's reasons for Brexit. There's reasons why yeah. Europe is struggling to stay together. There are reasons the Soviet Union falls apart. And the big part of that reason, of course, is that it requires compromise. Yeah. Um, you've got a nice little community running somewhere in the semi-tropics, and that's great. And there's another little community doing quite well up in the northern hemisphere where it's all cold, etc. And, of course, they've got different cultures. Yeah. Um, then when you try pulling the whole lot together in one great block, there is no one culture that's going to suit them all. Yeah. So everybody's got to compromise. So eventually you find yourself living in a political system that nobody yeah. is comfortable with. Yeah. So is it a good thing? Well, if people would all agree to live the way I think they should live, should all speak English, should all worship my God and this sort of thing, yes, it would be wonderful. Yeah. But if they're going to demand that we worship Xi Ping and Zeus, I see a lot of problems ahead, Matt. Mm. Well, it's funny you bring up the spiritual thing. My spiritual belief is that our purpose is to unify with the source if you like, and you can, you can call that. Right. So I see unification as being the arrow of history. Uh, but I'm not talking about political unification now, I'm talking about spiritual unification. Right. So, and that's a long, long way off, right? Yeah. Um, so from the satellite the satellite view, I'd say, yes, it's a good thing. But there's no doubt that we've got a long way to go and there's going to be a lot of heartache uh, in the process. And, and, and that... I mean, it's interesting that Harari says that's a good thing. I mean, yeah. that's the tension and the heartache that results yes. from the unification. He's saying it's a good thing because that's where creativity and, and solutions to problems lie. And I'm, I prefer things to be pleasant. So as soon as something's unpleasant, I think I, I tend to assume it's a bad thing. But I like the way he said that. He's saying, look, you know, just because something's unpleasant, it can still be a, you know, he's saying it's a good thing. Right. And so, yeah, so that, that makes me feel a bit happier about everything. Uh, the other thing not mentioned here, of course, is technology. Um, technology has been a huge unifier. Um, at the internet, for example, the whole transfer of money thing, um, the ability to design something in one place and produce it in another and ship it to another. Uh, the whole GPS satellite thing, you know, these are all technologies which are making the world a smaller and smaller place. Yeah. Um, and I think our unification is also going to include things like cyborging, genetic engineering, stuff like this. Mm -hmm. See, what's, if we get to a point where 
essentially humans are artificial in a sense. I mean, let's say there's cyborgs out yes. in the world. They, they won't have as many problems like you're talking about. Like the cold won't, won't bother them, the heat won't bother them yeah. and so forth. So maybe, maybe that's all part of what we're talking about. Um, the other thing too is you were talking about the timescale. You know, it could take a long time for us to get from where we are to full globalisation. But the trend of history is the opposite. Things keep happening faster and faster. Yes, we that's are, true. We are seeing empires come and go. Soviet Union, British Empire, possibly the US Empire. We're looking at these huge empires coming and going within the last hundred years. We're looking at species, not so much coming, but going a lot quicker. Correct. Than and we are looking at, you know, we can, by the year 2100, we can redesign the human genome, and we probably will. Yeah. So... We could see full globalisation within 70 years. Yeah. Globalisation is unification at one level. Yes. Um, I think there are higher levels of unification, but that's only a belief, you know, no, that, that's not a fact. That's another story because, yes, religions are still a huge player in this world. You know, we talked about the three big ones, politics, economics and uh, religion. Um Religion is not going to disappear from this complexity. Mm -hmm. And the other thing we have is the first global civilization may not be the last. It can fall apart and redevelop. It would be unusual for humanity to get anything right first time. <laughs> yeah. Um that's the end of my questions. I only had two and a half questions today. Well, I think that's a fairly good and place I'm gonna to leave. And I'm going to give you one and a quarter out oh, of two and a half. Your unending generosity never yes. ceases to astonish you. And that has no bearing on what you actually answered. That was just the number that I decided, pre-decided that I wanted to give you. And this is the only way to keep the children in line. If you reward them on things they do, you've got no hope. <laughs> okay. But I do actually think that's probably a pretty good place to leave it. Um, Globalisation will happen, is happening, the forces are inexorable. It will not necessarily be a good thing. The first time it happens, it will probably be wrong. There's a lot more water to flow under these bridges. Our Mongol Empire needs to be built and then it needs to uh, go away. Indeed. And sorting out our religion and our spiritual frameworks is going to be a big part of that, yes. Yeah. All right, well, thanks for your time today, Hutto. I think we'll leave it there. Unless there was something else you wanted to say, are you, are you good? I am good. I'll see you on the flip-flop. I'll see you then. Yay!